Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Ford announced that it will eliminate about 20% of its workforce across Europe, closing six factories uh, with uh, some in Germany. The shares of the company up 2.2%, sort of showing how markets are viewing this. Cut jobs as you try to streamline your business, and they've been dealing with a host of issues in Europe in particular. Joining us now to get a sense of the implications of this announcement, David Kudla, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investor investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management with $2.5 billion under management, uh, hailing from Michigan, where Ford is based. Thank you so much for being with us, David. We love having you on. So let's just start with what was your initial knee-jerk reaction to Ford's announcement this morning about the job cuts? Good morning, Lisa. Well, we expected this. We we knew this was coming. Uh, We've seen Ford uh, continue to streamline, streamline operations in Europe. Uh, The market there is weak overall, and uh, Ford, like GM, has uh, the the problem of uh, working in that middle market, selling in that middle market uh, with a lot of their products. Uh, There's a weak market overall. Uh, They have strength in commercial vehicles, uh, but they're not in the luxury car market where the the money is made in Europe, and that's the, the problem they suffer from. And so where... General Motors decided finally to just exit by selling their Opal unit. Uh, Ford is trying to stay there, and the only way they can stay there is to continue to restructure, 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 and we're seeing another big, big step in that direction. It's interesting, David. You mentioned GM and, and Opal, uh, and I look at the stock today, and I'm sure you know stockholders clearly like this move here. Do you think Ford is considering doing a GM and just kind of getting out of the European market? It just seems so brutal to make a profit there. It, it is brutal to make a profit there. Uh, if you look, you know, at the, at the economic situation, uh, the political environment, regulatory environment in Europe, uh, the, the, the current uh, economic environment in Europe, and, you know, the trouble that American automakers have had competing there, uh, it's a very different market from the U.S. And the strength of American automakers is um, in, in trucks uh, and SUVs, large trucks, which don't which don't sell there. They're not they're not made. They're not popular in Europe. And so, uh, you know, the the money that's made in Europe is in luxury cars and uh, in commercial vehicles. Now, Ford has strength in commercial vehicles. They have a partnership with VW that they're they're doing quite well with, uh, but not really in the luxury vehicle segment. That belongs to the the, the luxury brands there in Europe and and some some others that are imported. Uh, in that middle market, that that's where uh, you can struggle. But they do in the SUV market, the Kuga that sold over 150,000 units last year, the EcoSport over 100,000 units last year. They have some strength there. So the way they're streamlining now uh, with uh, the three divisions are going from, they're talking about maybe bringing in uh, some 
you know, an iconic brand with the Mustang, uh, there might be some opportunity there, a small opportunity in the niche market. But the, uh, this streamlining, I, I think, has some potential, but it's it's just a difficult market, I think, for an American automaker. How do we sort of view the difficulties in the European auto market in, lieu, in light of some of the trade tensions and the global slowdown in growth uh, more generally? I mean, is this a part of that story, or is this idiosyncratic having to do with the models that are popular and regulation? and just uh, the sort of uh, entrenchment of local companies there? Well, that, you know, that's the other part of it. Uh, you know, one of the, the announcements with this is that they, uh, that, that Ford expects to more than triple their passenger vehicle imports into Europe annually by 2024. And if you're going to triple your passenger vehicle imports into Europe annually by 2024, you need a favorable trade environment to do that. And uh, the current administration has is, is made that quite difficult. So, uh, you know, you, you have entrenched brands there that are, are there is a lot of brand loyalty on that continent. Uh, and I think that's where there's been difficulty with, you know, some of the brands that, that import there. But now you have these artificial barriers or let's call them real barrier, barriers with uh, the uh, the, the trade wars that are coming up and the tariffs that, that keep popping their head up or threats of tariffs that keep popping their head up. So, David, I know in the States there's a, a growing discussion about whether we have reached uh, peak auto uh, in the U.S. Are there similar discussions in Europe like that? There's similar discussions like that, but the the concern in in, in Europe is, is that is that uh, auto sales have just been stagnant really for for quite some time because of the economic conditions and for you know GM before this and Ford for years have just been operating at a loss they've had very few years over many years where they've had a profit uh, Ford had a 400 million dollar loss last year and in Europe and will probably again this year uh, with this restructuring uh, as we get you know down the road that may help but it is just a market where there have been more years in recent years uh, many more years of loss than profit and you know how long do you sustain that and I think that's why uh, GM finally decided to cut the cord with their Opal unit. David Kudla, thank you so much. David is the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Strategist at Main State Capital Management uh, based in Michigan. And uh, we love to have him on talking about the auto industry. He's really plugged in there. And it's a, just a big, big issue for the U.S. automakers in Europe. We have the Democratic debates underway to, uh, tonight is the second night of a two-night extravaganza with 20 uh, candidates meeting. <laughs> Joining us now to talk about what we heard last night, Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama and Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. First of all, I'd love to get your impression of last night's debate. What was your thought? Well, you know, it's pretty much what I expected, and it is one of the challenges with the format of having 10 people on stage trying to share two hours. You know, if you look at the recent past of debates, they really don't have a big effect. We'll talk about them for about 24 hours, but short of somebody making a major gaffe, and I didn't see that last night, um, you know, it's it, some candidates will move up, some will move down a little bit, but I think it's sort of status quo. Uh, obviously, I think Julian Castro did have a very nice night last night, and I think 
think it will cause people uh, to look at him a little differently. I was also, frankly, surprised by Mayor de Blasio, uh, who came out very strong. And, you know, he hasn't really had much traction in his race as well. Uh, I also thought uh, um, uh, Senator Warren uh, did well as uh, also. The challenge, however, is that, you know, in this 24-hour period from less than 24 before the end of uh, one debate to the start of another debate, there's not much time. And then by tomorrow, we'll be talking about date, debate number two. So, Chris, were you surprised at all that the candidates generally last night did not go after uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who, at least on that stage, uh, was the front runner? You know, I am a little surprised by that. And you saw and there was a place, I think, certainly to do that. Uh, that moment when uh, the moderators asked them to to raise their hands whether they would uh, eliminate private insurance, uh, health insurance. You saw um, you saw Congressman Delaney a little bit kind of go after that. Uh, but I think by and large, you know, the, the, the unfortunate thing about the format, um, you know, at, at about halfway through, uh, the people start cutting in on each other. But by and large, for that first period of time when she was doing most of the speaking, uh, the 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 contenders were really just kind of waiting to be asked questions. So it didn't really lend itself to kind of a lot of back and forth. So you're a DNC, uh, Democratic National Co- uh, Committee, super delegate. So you're intimately yeah. connected uh, with the Democratic Party. And I, I, there is sort of a very big question here embedded in these debates. And that is, can any of these candidates beat P- President Trump? And from what you heard last night, did you feel more confident or less confident of that? Uh, I, I'm not sure I felt more or less confident. As I said, you know, I think, look, um, I, I was with President or Senator Obama back in 2007. Uh, we went through an endless series of debates. And, uh, you know, if you go back and read the press accounts of that first debate, uh, Senator Obama was pretty underwhelming at the time. And so, look, it's early in the process. Um, candidates do get better. And I frankly, what I think is going to be more interesting for many of these candidates, uh, they're going to have to post their second quarter fundraising numbers uh, at the end of uh, June. Uh, it'll be interesting to see because that, you know, it is not cheap to run some of these campaigns. And uh, some of them have had a challenge raising money in this crowded field. So, you know, look, I think last night uh, we heard a lot of substantive debates. It was largely free of insults. Uh, it was completely free of insults. And that's kind of a marked change from, I think, what we saw in the 2016 Republican debates uh, with uh, then-candidate Trump. So, Chris, I also noticed last night that the c- candidates didn't really attack Trump's character or maybe some of his questionable uh, policies and actions and tweets. Do you think the sticking to the policies strategy will work against Trump? You know, look, I, I think I, I think I think they need to do both. Um, I think it's highlighting um, what um, uh, Trump's policies, his his demeanor in office, but I think it's also um, putting forward uh, an affirmative, positive agenda of what they're going to do on things uh, like healthcare, education, or immigration. Uh, largely, that kind of anti-Trump message I don't think really needs to be made. It's being made here in Washington every day. It's being made on the cable news networks. Uh, you know, I just got back from I was in Iowa yesterday uh, meeting with some voters, and they really want to hear about uh, the issues that are affecting their lives. And so um, I, I don't know that they necessarily, the candidates necessarily need to draw that distinction because it really is being made for them. You know, you started out talking about the limitations of this debate format. Is there a way that uh, it could have been done that would have been more effective? Uh, sort of lesson learned for next time not to have two nights <laughs> of 10 different candidates on the stage, each having about 30 seconds to talk. Yeah. 
You know, it's unfortunate because the Democratic National Committee, I think, was trying to address the concerns that came out of 2016 that they may have, you know, put their thumb on the scale. And so what they wanted to do very early on is create these objective criteria so everyone knew what they were and would try to meet them. In hindsight, they probably set the criteria a little bit too low. This idea that 65,000 donations could get you in. Uh, in this day and age, it's relatively easy to do that, and you can game it in a bunch of different ways. I think the real interesting challenge will be when they get to September, because then the donation threshold goes to 130,000. Uh, it's also a 2% polling threshold. So I think you may likely see only you know, a, a dozen candidates on the debate stage uh, come September. So, Chris, tonight we have the second night of debates. And, of course, um, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden and uh, Bernie Sanders is, is well uh, the front runners. What do you expect tonight? Well, I think tonight's going to be a fascinating contrast. I'm going to be looking at whether um, uh, Senator Sanders and Vice President Biden go after each other. I suspect they won't. But I think what you will see is this kind of interesting um, gender and generational uh, contrast with uh, Kamala Harris on stage, along with Pete Buttigieg, uh, who, even if they're not directly going after either Sanders or Biden, uh, pro- uh, provide sort of an interesting contrast for voters uh, who want either a more diverse candidate or a younger candidate. And who do you think is winning right now for the, uh, quote, soul of the Democratic Party, the more liberal wing, the sort of further left or the centrist? Well, it's it's interesting. There's, uh, there's the contradiction between what we all see on social media and Twitter, which is clearly a much more uh, progressive audience than and, and what you certainly see when you're out talking to voters and what you see in public opinion polls. Um, but I do think, which is, I think, more moderate. I do think it's a challenge. I think ultimately, when you look at these candidates, uh, there are some extremes, but by and large, they're united in the idea that we need to do more to uh, make the economy work for everyone. We need to do more to expand health care and make it um, uh, less expensive. We need to do more in terms of uh, building up our relationships with allies. I think it's gradations on a spectrum at this point. Chris Liu, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, wish you the best of luck. Chris Liu is senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama. Also, he is a DNC superdelegate, has just been in Iowa talking to prospective voters. As Paul Sweeney was talking just minutes ago, you might have heard some beeping in the background, and that's because I was up against the wall holding a smartphone in various places to try to get a size uh, of what clothes I should be buying. And that is because Ronan Luzon is here with us. He is founder and chief executive officer of My Size, uh, based in Israel, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Uh, Ronan, My Size, from what I could tell, is an app on your phone that allows you to buy sensors by just holding the phone in very places while I'm wearing some clothes, I'm still wearing clothes, uh, to, uh, to tell you exactly what size you'd be in different brands to facilitate online shopping. Is that correct? That's right. Absolutely right. Yeah. So how much has this been adopted so far? So um, <clears throat> the company started in 2014. 
and we started as a publicly traded company, but we just launched the product last September in Fashion Week in New York. So it took us about four years to make this thing happen. It started as a dream, as, as a problem that each and every one of us suffer when we're buying things online. We get always the, the wrong size. Well, not always, but we get sometimes the wrong size. And it took four years, and we just launched it in last September in Fashion Week, and it was great. Like, retailers are looking for a solution because they're suffering so much from the online returns. In U.S. alone, it's between 30 and 50% returns. So almost every second item is being sent back. It's an absurd situation for the retailers and for us, the consumers. So we just now start kicking off. We, we began romping up the, uh, the adoption of the technology, both on retailers and consumers alike. Uh, even though our, our business model is B2B. So who's paying for that technology is the retailers. Uh, the consumer is completely free for use and, uh, and, and try so that everybody can download it. But who's paying for that is the retailers. So they're paying for every what we call a fit recommendation. Us as a users, as a consumers, when we're going online for our favorite retailer or a new retailer that we don't know our sizes before, we click on the button to get our recommended size. And then when we as a my size charge the retailer for. All right. So talking about the technology here again, I was uh, working over here and you guys were over there in the corner of the studio. <laughs> he, he raises his eyebrows. I was working. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard a lot of buzzing and beeping and phones being waved around. How does the technology work? So when I started that... It's, it was because of my, my kid. Now, today he's 15, but he back then was ordering things online, especially NBA uh, uh, suits, and it came wrong size. And now I was thinking, something must change here. So there was different technologies out there, and one of them was image processing. So you need to take a picture of yourself, and then by the, the image, it does the calculation of, of, of the sizing. The thing is that you need to take your clothes off. Now, I would never get my kid uh, taking a picture with naked or half naked and send it to, doesn't matter how secure the server is, it will never happen, especially for women. Even, even for us as men, uh, we will never do that. So I was thinking what other uh, possibilities can be to do that. So we took the mobile phone sensors. The same sensors that are in almost every mobile phone for kids when they're playing with a phone, they move it from one place to another. It's the same sensors. It's an accelerometer and the gyro that reside in the mobile phone and an algorithm that we've developed. So we know to take the information from the sensors when you move the phone over your body from one place to another, we know to measure the distance the phone is moving between two points. And that's how we actually make this technology work for the apparel. So uh, what types of companies are you working with to sort of uh, get more online traction and, and to understand how to sort of limit some of these returns? So it's amazing that um, we've started actually uh, demonstrating technology back in CES in 2017. And back then the technology didn't actually work. It was more like a, a proof of concept. Even that was not the best uh, scenario. But in CES 2018, we actually launched the, pet, the beta one. And when we launched the beta, we understood that so many retailers followed us because they have this issue of sizing and fit, and they need to accommodate the problem. And starting 2018, when we start demonstrating the actual body measurement technology that we're doing today, um, retailers start to sign up uh, for LOIs and pilots and try it out. And today we have uh, two tier one uh, customers that sign up with our solution. It's take, it takes time for the tier one customers to start the integration. It takes, it takes longer than we actually anticipated because 
what we see is that the retailer is not that much of a computer-oriented, of an IT company that can have a technology like that and start working with it as, like, as, as we can see for the small and medium-sized uh, retailer that's doing it in a in couple of days or week. They actually integrate it. So it's, it's take, it takes them time to integrate it. But uh, we as well done the integration on Shopify platforms, uh, platform and Lightspeed platform. It's the same like Shopify, but in Europe, on Europe, yep. Netherlands. And we can see these these small ones are taking this technology and integrated within a couple of hours, and they stop working with it. And it's amazing. It's amazing product. You see how they can save returns, which kills their business if they don't. Right. Absolutely. Ronan, thanks so much for coming on and measuring my co-host here. Uh, thank you for not measuring <laughs> me. As I said, I'm a 42 regular right off the rack. Don't have, don't have to worry about me. Ronan Luzon, founder and CEO of MySize. Uh, just a really cool technology. Keep us in the loop as this thing continues to develop. We'd really like to kind of see how this plays out. Very interesting technology as more and more clothing goes uh, online. We've talked a lot about Libra, which is the cryptocurrency, or at least it's been called a cryptocurrency. Uh, it's an idea that Facebook is putting out there, and I really am excited to bring in Aaron Brown. I always love speaking with him. He is the former managing director and head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management. But I'm especially excited today because he wrote a column uh, as a Bloomberg Opinion columnist that I found incredibly compelling. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it was talking about how in general, the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency community is moving outside of the financial system that is sort of entrenched, and that Facebook was doing the exact opposite, and from the top down, trying to come up with some kind of monetary uh, unit that could rival the dollar, the euro, the yen. Can you explain how that's the case? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, The best term for what Libra is, is something called digital cash. Now, cash is something that like, can be a dollar bill, it can be a gold coin, it can be anything that you can pass from one person to another without leaving a transaction record and that the individual can identify, can, can you know, validate. It's hard to counterfeit. Um, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are much broader ideas, you know, uh, trying to uh, re-engineer both technology of exchange and financial system and whatever. Uh, Libra is an old idea. It's a, you know, it's, it's a gold coin, it's a dollar bill. It just happens to be digital, meaning that it's a number. It's not a physical piece of paper. It's not a uh, piece of metal. Um, so in one sense, it's a very conservative idea. It's just saying, okay, let's take cash and let's, let's make it digital, uh, something that Bitcoin does, but Bitcoin does tons of other stuff too. I think Libra is a competitor to other forms of cash. When I say it's a competitor to the U.S. dollar, I don't mean the U.S. dollar financial system you know, with the central bank and the Fed and banking. I mean those physical pieces of paper that people use, whether you know, buying a cup of coffee or putting a whole bunch in a suitcase to buy a boatload of drugs, whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's what Libra is going to, that's the market Libra is going to attack. So it's interesting, uh, Aaron, we've had, you know, thinking about the Bitcoin, the volatility has really come back into that security. I see it down about 8.7% today. It just had this incredible run uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, couple of days, crazy trading. Who is actually trading this thing? 
Well, you know, I wrote a column about 10 days ago saying the 2019 rally in Bitcoin was completely different from the earlier ones. It was not marked by excessive volatility. It was real money. It was based on fundamentals, and you could really, you know, trace it. Uh, but the last 10 days made me a liar, and we're seeing all Not a liar, just you were postulating, <laughs> and it turns out perhaps it's a little more volatile than that. Yeah, well, well it changed. I mean, we're now seeing the last, well, certainly the last week, or uh, we were just seeing a lot of the kinds of stuff we saw in, you know, late 2017 and, and in previous uh, crypto rallies. We're seeing a lot of retail investors. We're seeing real money selling. We're seeing high volatility. We're seeing high, you know, once it starts going up, there's, you know, just massive people piling in. And if it starts to go down a little bit, the people pile out. Um, I hope this is just like a flash in the pan. I mean, I hope this is just like a minor thing. It does seem to be connected around the Libra announcement, which has no, you know, I mean, it, it's not that big an announcement, period, and it certainly doesn't have a huge effect on the long-term value of crypto, but it got a lot of people excited, and I think it got a lot of uh, uh, people piling in. So I think what we're seeing uh, in late June is you know, kind of a mini uh, boom and bust, uh, and I hope that the rest of 2019 is going to go along on a nice, steady, fundamental uh, move up or down, but not you know, based on real investors putting real money in, looking at the fundamentals as opposed to people afraid of missing out. Well, Aaron, I want to pick up on the idea that some people connected this to Libra and uh, some people who were just speculating, but Danny Masters was on our show uh, earlier this week of CoinShares, uh, and he was saying that there is a direct connection uh, in terms of this creates a platform for people to potentially use Bitcoin right, uh, right next to dollars as a, you know, to transfer cash. So it creates the piping uh, for Bitcoin to enter more commonplace uh, methods of payment. Do you ascribe to that kind of idea? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Among other things, Libra is a very crypto-friendly form of cash. And all the problems we've had with, you know, Bitcoin and financial markets and, and, and cryptocurrencies and so on has been when people try to connect them to dollars. Uh, that's where you get the fraud. That's where you get the volatility. That's where you get the regulators upset. You know, as long as people are just using cryptocurrency in itself, it's a very uh, sedate, calm, you know, it's a rapidly changing technology, but it's one that has been clearly uh, beneficial and useful. So if Libra is successful, now that's a huge if. I mean, all we really have is 28 logos of companies and Facebook saying they want to do it. Uh, we don't really have the kind of, you know, infrastructure and commitment. I'm sorry. The other thing we do have is Facebook has invested a ton of money in, in writing code and developing this. But if it is successful, it will make it much easier to use cryptocurrencies. And I think it would tame the volatility in cryptocurrency quite a bit. Aaron, how do you think the regulatory environment around crypto broadly defined is going to evolve? I think when the Facebook made its announcement about Libra, uh, that kind of perked up the ears of a lot of regulators and politicians in Washington. How do you think this is going to evolve? You know, I, I think my, I, I usually feel this, you know, we're, we're going to work out to a sensible consensus. There are some real advantages. There are tremendous economic advantages to, to going to crypto. And Libra is a much better form of cash than dollars or gold or, or, or anything else people have used, you know, seashells or salt or, or big rocks. But so, so it's going to happen, I think, some form of global digital currency digital cash will be around. And I think regulators will allow the innovations and useful parts of crypto. But it also raises, you know, it, it kind of undermines the regulatory regime. An awful lot of law 
especially taxes, but also other laws, are enforced through currency regulations. Uh, if everybody is using cash, you know, if there's no paper record or at least no traceable, searchable law enforcement record of transactions, an awful lot of crimes uh, become a lot easier. We used to have one of those common crimes we used to have was mugging. Now people just don't carry enough cash to make mugging worthwhile, right? They no. switch to credit cards. But and, hacking, but now hacking is a huge issue. So yeah, there you go, right? They switch to hacking, right? So criminals are going to switch to whatever, uh, whatever works for them. But so there's a tremendous amount of regulatory work that has to be done. You know, people have to agree on regulations. There are, of course, many people in crypto who feel that they can right. you know, do without governments and go through <laughs> it. But that's just not realistic. Very good. Thank you. Aaron Brown. Thank you so much. A columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, talking all things uh, crypto. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.